talk about women from folklore and mythology all around the world. I'm your host Zoe and I'm Lizzie and today Lizzie you did the research so I don't know what we're going to talk about but what are we going to talk about? Today we're going to talk about the Lady of the Lake from Arthurian legend from medieval Great Britain. Ooh a classic. Yes she's great. So the first thing to understand about Arthurian legend is that it's a body of stories from a host of different writers dating from between roughly the 11th to the 17th century. As such, stories and details about the characters can vary widely, and the Lady of the Lake is no different. Nice. There have been several Lady of the Lake characters mentioned in Arthurian legend, with even Morgan Le Fay being named as one of them. But the Lady of the Lake we'll be talking about today is the woman also known as Vivian, Nimue, Ninian, and other names. Aside from having a wide variety of names, there's also uncertainty about whether the wide array Lady of the Lake legends even refer to the same figure, or if there are multiple Ladies of the Lake. Ooh. So, like, I don't know if you're going to talk about this later, but is this, like, do you, like, did this start as an oral tradition thing, do you think? I don't or, think like, it did. That later got wrote down, and then, I don't, um, I don't think so. I guess I don't actually know. Oh, that's okay. I know it started off being written down in the 11th century. I don't know if it was a thing before then or not, but anyway, we'll get to related things later but i guess i don't actually know cool okay yeah so the lady of the lake was prior to mallory's la morte d'arthur in 1485 an anonymous woman who provided king arthur with his sword excalibur mallory coined the name lady of the lake for her as Mm -hmm. she was meant to live under or near a lake which is where arthur first sees her all right it's interesting that she lives in a lake yes like that just feels kind of random to me well there's probably some symbolism there well the Lady of the Lake didn't literally live under a lake, but rather in what is described as a Celtic otherworld, and the lake was an illusion to keep the entrance of her home secret Ooh. from intruders. Night. Okay, I feel that. I understand that better now. Yes. So, henceforth, I'll be referring to her as either the Lady of the Lake or Vivian, just to avoid confusion. <laughs> so, we'll start with her origin story. So, a young Vivian would frequently go to the forest of Briosk to play. One day, a handsome youth came to the forest, and he sees her, like, beyond the fence. He starts staring at her. Mm. She greets him. She's, like, 15 years old at this point, and she introduces herself. She asks him who he is, and he replies that he's a wandering apprentice seeking his master, who has taught him his most praiseworthy trade. She asks what trade, and he replies, In truth, he has taught me so well that I could raise a castle right here and have a great many people take refuge inside and others fall upon it from without. And I could do something else just as well. I could walk across that pond without getting my feet wet. And I could make a river flow over there where no water has ever run before. So young Vivian is so amazed by this youth and his skills. Mm -hmm. And she, she promises to be his lady love and his friend forever if he promises to teach her his trade. Okay. And he agrees. Mm -hmm. So, any idea who the handsome youth is? Um, well, it's Arthurian. Uh, is it, it, wait, is it Merlin? 
Yes, it's Murray. Nice. He's in disguise. Oh. He basically... Wait, so is he not a he youth? Sees her, or is he still a youth? He's not a youth. Oh, no. He disguises himself as a youth. Oh, no. He sees her from across the way, and he decides to disguise himself. And he also is very, at- very tempted to take her virtue, but he decides against it because he doesn't want to, like, besmirch her virtue or, like, ruin her whatever, oh. her reputation. I don't know, well, because he's so in love with well, her. Well, thank you, Merlin. We really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he teaches her magic. At this point, I have no idea when she finds out that he's Merlin. I haven't been able to find a source for it. I don't really know the timeline or, like, how she found it or, like, how she reacted when she found out. Mm-hmm. All I know is that at this point, she's bound to him. She's bound to, like, you know, marry him or whatever. Mm. And um, he teaches her magic. And she soon surpasses him in skill. Ooh. It's like the opposite of that trope nowadays. That's like the female character is the really skilled one. And then there's like this random male chosen one, nobody guy, loser, who like comes (laughs) in and is like, he's the one who's going to lead the fight, not you, actually talented female character. Yeah. And then she has to like teach him and whatever. Yeah, she is such a fascinating character, but we'll get more into that. So Mm -hmm. fast forwarding a little bit. Um, so, at some point, when she's a fully realized sorceress, she kidnaps a baby. So, this baby is called Galahad, and, Ah. yes, and he, uh, so his father is called King Bon, and he's the king of Benwick. His mother is called Queen Elaine, and while King Bon is dying from battle, Queen Elaine, like, weeps over his body, and she leaves the baby Galahad, like, against a tree. Mm. And the Lady of the Lake takes the baby and leaps through the enchanted lake where Elaine can't follow. So, a little bit... So did she, like, kidnap him? Or did she just see, like, a baby that was un... like, cared for and was like, oh, I better save this baby? Well, okay, so... Okay. A woman kidnapping a child in these days and also now, is reprehensible. But a fairy kidnapping a child was more acceptable. Interesting. So in Celtic lore, fairies were immensely powerful, skilled, and feared beings who were known to kidnap children, sometimes neglected children who were not well cared for in order to protect them. Okay. So with this in mind, the kidnapping makes more sense. Mm -hmm. Queen Elaine was so grieved by the loss of her husband that she was said to have been ripping her clothes to tatters and clawing at her face until her cheeks were dripping with blood, mm. all while leaving the baby near a tree and forgetting about him. Yeah. So, so that like, in mind, yeah. it's, it makes a bit more sense. And mm-hmm. she's a fairy, and so it was a bit more socially acceptable, I guess. <laughs> yeah, fairies anyway, are allowed to kidnap babies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so she renames this child Lancelot. Oh. Yes, and Lancelot means very wise and skilled knight of the lance and sword. Really? She, yes. And she, I know, yeah, it's very literal, Lance, Lancelot. <laughs> anyway, so she raises him. She cares for him as if he was her own and teaches him how to be a great knight. Mm-hmm. And at some point, she gives him the advice that a knight should have two hearts, one as hard as diamond and the other as soft as wax. With his hard heart, the knight opposes treachery and cruelty. While the waxen heart allows the knight to follow people who can lead him to goodness and graciousness. Very nice. Yeah, And then 
Yes. And so she raises him, teaches him how to be a great knight, and then sends him off to King Arthur's court so he can become the best knight in the world. So Lancelot grew up not knowing his own name because the Lady of the Lake did not tell him it. Mm. nor the names of his parents and he was only told that he would find out his real name when he became the best knight in the world interesting yeah so while he's at king arthur's court they just call him the white knight and he has to be like actually i don't know what my own name is oh so he doesn't even know that his name is lancelot no okay so i I thought that was just like he didn't know his name was galahad but he doesn't know any name no he does not have a name as far as he's concerned as he's growing up interesting he finds out later that his name is Lancelot. Okay. So it's like earned name, title, like epithet sort of thing for him. I suppose so, yeah. Like he he gets his name when he like fulfills his destiny. Yeah, like because he's like the coolest best knight of the Lance and that's what they call him, and so that becomes his name. Yes, that makes sense. Also I think just very like mythic quality, like ooh, he doesn't even know his name until he finds like mm-hmm. his destiny. I think it's really fun. Yeah, and then like that sense of identity is like he doesn't so know his true. identity until he reaches his destiny. Oh my god, so true. You're so right. <laughs> so, uh, the Lady of the Lake is also a very consistent figure in Lancelot's story. She gives him a magical ring where he can call upon her whenever he so desires, and she helps him with magic all throughout his quests. So she's a very, very frequent figure in his story. Nice. And quite a benevolent figure. She's basically his mother and you know, helps him to fulfill his destiny. Mm -hmm. Okay, so back to Merlin. So the timeline is kind of unclear. I don't know which happens first, the kidnapping of Lancelot or the following events. So yeah, but anyway. (laughs) At some point she finds out that Merlin tricked her and she hates him. Mm. She hates that he's always after her virtue, to put it lightly. In The Sweet Do Merlin, it is stated... There was nobody in the world she hated so mortally as she did Merlin, because she knew well that he desired her maidenhead. Oof. And in the Lancelot Grail, it says, By this point, Ninian is thoroughly vexed by Merlin's constant interest in knowing her carnally and begins to look for ways to be rid of him. Yikes. Yeah, I don't blame her (laughs) for that. Yeah, so basically she just really, really hates him. It's also stated in the Sweet to Merlin, I could not have the heart to love him if he made me mistress of all the wealth under the throne of heaven because I know that he is the son of the devil. Wow. And he, he literally was the son of the devil. Oh, really? about him. Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> anyway, in the meantime, she learns absolutely everything she can from Merlin and takes him for a fool by how skilled she becomes nice and uh then she finds ways to be rid of him so there's two versions of merlin's death that we're gonna go over today Mm. the first version involves um so they're walking in the forest the perilous forest Mm. and they come across the lover's tomb which is a chamber that had been the home of another pair of lovers whose loyalty to one another was unparalleled and who dying on the same day were buried together interesting so I'm gonna I'm gonna think about that later. Okay, yes. I'm gonna talk about that later. Do. Okay, yes. So while Merlin is asleep, she enchants him so he can no longer move, and then she throws him face down into the lover's tomb and reseals it with an enchantment that only she can break. Ooh. And then she leaves him there to die, and there he still remains. Ah, so it's like another sleeping wake up sort of myth. 
Yeah, but he's stuck there forever. Mm. Nice. So the second version. So Merlin retires from King Arthur's court and is excited to spend the rest of his life with his beloved, Vivian. Mm. So one day Vivian asks him how she could keep a man imprisoned within a tower through magic so that he could never escape. Casual. So, yeah. (laughs) Merlin (laughs) understands her plans and tells her so, but he still tells her the way she can keep a man imprisoned in a tower because he is so in love with her. Interesting. Very. And she also asks him to teach her how to make a home with magic for them to live out their days. So he teaches her and she makes such a home for them. She then traps him in the tower, enchants him so he can't move, and leaves him there to die. So (laughs) Merlin could see the future and Uh thus knew exactly what was going to happen to him, but he was so powerless to her will because he was just so in love with her. All right. (laughs) Yeah, basically. And I just think the lover's tomb symbolism there in the first version is just so fun because it's like the juxtaposition of like these two devoted, perfect lovers. And then you have Merlin being thrown in there to die by his love. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that's such a fun little irony there. Definitely. It's like the the two other lovers are like, what's happening? Like... (laughs) Who's this guy? Why is he intruding on us? And I think it's interesting because I've seen, like, a sort of lover's tomb trope before in other stories. I'm gonna have to... I can't remember their names, unfortunately. But at the end of Grettir's saga, it's, like, kind of different, but it, like, is... It's interesting because um, there's this, like, sort of mini saga at the end where the brother of Grettir or the cousin, goes to, like, Constantinople and becomes, like, a knight of, um, or, of, uh, like, the sultan there. So I guess it's Istanbul, but, um, anyway, he, um, basically he's, like, living there, he's being, like, a cool Viking guy, and he falls in love with this woman named Spes, which means hope, I believe, um, and basically she's like already married to this other guy and then they just have this like big caper where they keep meeting up with each other and the husband keeps like almost finding them but like he hides in a trunk and so that he doesn't the husband doesn't find them and that's like based on the story of Tristan and Isolde um so like it's very much like plagiarized basically off that and so um Therefore, like, we see that the author of Gretir's Saga, whoever they were, um, knew about, like, these other European stories um, and legends. And then at the end, they, like, find religion and, like, entomb themselves um, in, like, this practice that's, like, that monks did, which I unfortunately cannot remember the name of. But, like, they basically decide, they, like, give up, like, their, uh, you know, they sort of, like, become, like, monks, and they sort of, like... um, give up, like, physical desires, and they, like, each, like, make their own tomb and, like, live next to each other until they die. But they're still, like, very much in love with each other. So that's what it made me think of, and I just thought that was interesting. Ah. Because, like, we see that they knew, like, about Tristan and Isolde, and so they probably also knew about, like, the story of Merlin and uh, Vivian. And I'm wondering mm. if there was, like, they were like, oh, I'm gonna take that story of the those, like, perfect lovers and, like, do something with it. Or something like that. It's super interesting. I love that juxtaposition. I think it's so fun. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So 
the other thing that the Lady of the Lake is super well known for is providing King Arthur with historic Excalibur. Mm-hmm. So King Arthur, he became king when he pulled the sword and the stone out of the stone and becomes, it is revealed that he's the true heir to the throne. He becomes the king. So at some point, the sword and the stone breaks while he's in battle against Sir Pellinore. And then the Lady of the Lake appears to him, gives him this magical sword called Excalibur, and makes him promise to fulfill any requests from her later. Uh-oh. In some versions, both swords are called Excalibur, which is a bit confusing, but anyway. She gives him Excalibur, makes him promise to fulfill a request for her later on. You should never make those promises. No, probably not for a magical fairy. It, like, never goes well for whoever does it. Yeah, so later she requests the head of Sir Balin, who she believes has killed her brother. Mm. Which, something interesting, I know nothing about her brother or any of her family. They're not common figures in her story. So if you're wondering where the brother came from, I also don't know. But Mm -hmm. anyway, she believes that... He has killed her brother, so she wants him dead. But Arthur refuses to kill him. Uh-huh. And Sir Balin hears this and instead chops off the Lady of the Lake's head, oh. crying, You wanted my head, so I shall take yours. Yikes. So that's how she dies. Oh. Uh, but King, Ra- King Arthur banishes Sir Balin from his court and gives Lady of the Lake a rich burial. Well, that's nice, at least. Yeah, I think it's very nice that he gives her a rich burial, especially considering... I mean, she killed his trusted advisor. Oh, yeah. That's true. So I think that's quite nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so after King Arthur uses Excalibur in the Battle of Camlin, a battle where Arthur is also mortally wounded, he, mm-hmm. he lies dying and he tells his knights to return Excalibur to the Lady of the Lake. So it's thrown back into the lake by Sir Bedivere and never seen again. Ooh. So, like, at this point she's already dead, though. So, like... It's just a symbolic gesture, I guess. Yeah, so, yeah, it's it's symbolic. But it's very uh-huh. nice. It gets yeah, returned it to nice. her, sort of, like, honors her. I think that's really nice. Yeah. And it, like, keeps whoever, um, like, a less worthy person from holding it, I guess, is yeah. the idea. Mm-hmm. So, interestingly, each of the Lady of the Lake's names can be traced back to another mythological figure who she was probably inspired by. Mm-hmm. So the name Nimue can be traced back to Nemesine, the Greek sea nymph who gives magical swords to Perseus. Oh, mm-hmm. that's really cool. It is. And the name Vivian is derived from the Welsh word, which is pronounced something like Hifleon, which means a wanderer of pallid countenance. And Vivian is also inspired by Coviana, otherwise known as Coventina, who was a Romano-British water goddess. Cool. Okay. And then, yes, and the name Ninian can be traced back to Rhiannon, who was another otherworldly Celtic figure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yes, it's very cool, because it shows sort of, like, this connectedness of mm-hmm. all the myths. In addition to those figures, she is also compared to the Greek sea nymph Thetis. AKA the mother mm. of Achilles. Mm-hmm. We know her. Both of them are. Yes. <laughs> Both of them are powerful aquatic spirits. Thetis is a sea nymph, and the Lady of the Lake is associated with a lake. Both of them raised the greatest warrior of their time. For Thetis, it was Achilles, and for the Lady of the Lake, it was Lancelot. Ah. And Thetis was married to King Peleus, whereas Lady of the Lake 
has a lover also called Peleus. Really? Yes. All right. Spelled different, but mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Fascinating. So yeah, um, the Lady of the Lake. I really, really like her character. She's so interesting. She really defies pre-existing roles for women in romance. So women in Arthurian legend were one of three things. They were either coaches or guides for knights, or they were villains or seductresses, or they were romantic slash passive objects. The Lady of the Lake is sometimes friendly to Arthur and his knights, sometimes acts of her own interests. She's generous, but she can also be selfish and ruthless. So she really defies sort of a category because she can be the villain, she can be the guide for Lancelot and Arthur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like she's sort of all three at once. Because, like, she's, like, yeah, exactly. the one story where, like, because obviously she's the guide for Lancelot and also a bit for Arthur. And then, like, um, the one story where um, she's, like, trying to trap Merlin in the tower and, like, Merlin knows what she's going to do, but he's too, like, in love with her to stop her. That, like, makes it sound like, you know, the evil villain seductress. Like, he was too entranced by her womanly wiles to, like, stop her evil plans exactly. or whatever. And then um, she is sort of, like, uh, I guess she's less of a passive object for all those other reasons, obviously. But, like, she does, like, in a way, like, obviously Merlin is constantly objectifying her, so. Mm-hmm. So Kenneth Hodges said that the Lady of the Lake is a chivalric figure, a heroine who acts like a knight and is instrumental in changing the definition of chivalry so that women can participate in chivalry as agents instead of as objects. That's really cool. Yeah, I think it's a super interesting analysis. At the same time, this analysis still makes her actions understood as in the realm of or comparable to the actions of men, Mm. which discounts the complexity of her as specifically a female character. I feel like her story very much revolves around her being a woman who is taken advantage of, but who ends up using this to her own advantage and overpowering the person who manipulated her. Mm-hmm. and carving out her own space in the world as a powerful sorceress in her own right. She is even said to have surpassed Merlin in skill. Yeah. And she also has significance beyond her association with Merlin, and she even gets her own death story, which I actually like because I feel like it makes her story very complete, sort of mm-hmm. like full circle, you know, rather than her character fading in obscurity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And yeah, she's just like very, I feel like, and also like the sword being like delivered back to her at the end it feels like mm-hmm. she's very much in like a significant part of all these different stories in arthurian legend and not just like oh the helper who shows up and like gives them this magic tool that they that just is conveniently there that they need in order to defeat whatever monster they're trying to defeat right now or whatever yeah i feel like she's allowed to be this very like multifaceted complex character who has multiple different like significances in Arthurian legend, etc. Mm-hmm. She is a, a benevolent force in Arthurian legend as re- in regards to Lancelot and Arthur, but a malevolent force in Merlin's story as she murders him. Mm-hmm. Part of me sort of wonders if the writers of these stories, or some of them, were just looking for ways to demonize her by making her into a villain. Because, uh, well, there were a lot of different writers, as I said, of the Arthurian canon, but that included, for example monks who said that women lacked souls mm. and in the in the estuard and merlin it is stated women have one more while than the devil so so that goes to show you who's writing these stories and there's the fact that the anonymous woman who gives arthur excalibur comes before the lady of the lake who kills merlin which makes me 
sort of wonder if they were going for like an assassination of her character. But if that's the case, they ended up making her more complex and interesting. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. I think she's such an interesting character and I I love how she gets to be so like complex, like she gets to be a, you know, a murderer who, uh-huh. who like takes revenge on her abuser and she gets to be like such an important figure in King Arthur and Lancelot's stories who are two of the most central characters in Arthurian legend Mm -hmm. yeah definitely and I think she like really does defy a lot of like tropes because she's not just like um the motherly I I feel like I've said this already but she's not like just the motherly figure and she's also not like the helpless maiden um who's, like, being taken advantage of. And she's also, I like you said, she's not just, like, evil, because it's, like, we hear exactly, like, what's been happening to her to make her... We hear her motives, and we see the background to her story. And so, like, even though, I guess, at the time when the monks were writing it, they were like, this woman is evil, and everything she does is evil. But, like, of course, looking at it, we now we, like, see an actual, like female character that's allowed to not sort of like be what's that word well she's not like um just letting things happen to her she's like taking control of situations and reacting to it in ways that are very understandable for someone with like the means and abilities that she has yeah it's like we don't know the intentions of these authors but considering the time period i feel like Mm -hmm. it's not too off base to to say that they were misogynistic but uh Regardless, the Lady of the Lake is such a fascinating character. She gets quite the journey that comes from, like, when she's a child and goes until her death. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I really like her. I think she's very cool. Yeah, definitely. I do, like, think that her death is, even though, like, I like that she has a burial, and I definitely like your point that, like, her story is very complete. I just, I think it is very much like a, a sort of, like, sexist uh, cop-out in a way. Because um, mm-hmm. she's like, I want this guy dead because he killed my brother, which is a very understandable um, motive, especially at the time when like family deaths were avenged through blood feuds and stuff like that. And that was just like the societal norm. And like, but then, of course, there's a the question like she asked Arthur to do it, even though it feels like considering everything else she's done, she should be able to do it herself. Like what's stopping yeah. her considering like what she did to Merlin and everything. And then, um, of course, Arthur's, like, too good a guy or whatever um, to do it. And then she just ends up getting killed. And then there's, like, no justice there for her, which sucks, but... That's true. Yeah. I mean, it's, like, because Sir Balin was a knight of the round table. Mm-hmm. So it's understandable why Arthur wouldn't want to kill him, but... Yeah. But also yeah. I feel like the whole thing is sort of, like, to test Arthur rather than anything to do with the Lady of the Lake. Oh, yeah, and then it's sort of, like, the great temptation of Arthur, or, like... Yeah, exactly. He made a promise, but he's more loyal to those near him, or whatever, like, to his brothers in arms, or whatever. And then she's acting like the temptress, devil, wily lady, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think she's very cool. I didn't know a lot of this stuff about her, so... And I think it's interesting because um, Lance, I don't know if you know this, but didn't like Lancelot um, come like later to Arthurian canon? I believe he did. I don't know how much later, but because I know the first appearances of the Lady of the Lake were like her relationship with King Arthur mm-hmm. and then her relationship with Merlin. 
so I don't know exactly when Lancelot came in, but yeah. Um, if I recall correctly, I think it was like Chrétien de Troyes who did it. It might have like, been, yeah. And he was like, "I'm gonna make this cool French knight. I'm also French. <laughs> no connection there." Um, but like, I think it's interesting that he chose like the Lady of the Lake specifically to be like his mentor and um his mother figure as opposed to like you know just creating some other random mother figure and like in a way it feels like he's trying to like both give her more depth and like make her like a better character Mm -hmm. sort of like redeem her in a way from any like wicked sorceress stories it's like here she is being a mother and like using her powers to like help this guy become a great hero or whatever i do think that you can attribute the complexity of so many arthurian characters to the fact that their stories were so varied because of all the different authors mm-hmm. and there were like different accounts of the same story yeah i just think that's i think that's really fun too it's like everyone was like oh i it like is. this legend <laughs> i'm gonna write something new to it and now they're and all like exce- yeah now it's all canon like if when nowadays i was like i'm gonna create a new knight of the round table everyone would be like you can't do that but like mm-hmm. Why not? Cool. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, Arthurian legend is so fun for that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, and where did you get your information from? So I looked at the Lancelot Grail Vulgate. I don't know if it's Vulgate or Vulgate. Do you think it's Vulgate or Vulgate? <sighs> I really should know this because it's like a Catholic term, but I don't. So it's okay. <laughs> I looked at the Lancelot Grail and I looked at a bunch of articles about them but yeah awesome Alrighty, thank you this is very cool yes also i really loved all the um etymology for her name and how yes. it connects all these different stories and it's really interesting to think about especially like mm-hmm. you said it was 11th century yeah that's when it started yeah so at that point like the romans had already conquered like great britain and stuff so i'm guessing they probably could have brought their myths over and mm-hmm. then that would have influenced local culture and stories. And they made their own, like, heroes and characters and stuff, probably. Mm-hmm. It's my completely unexpert theory. Yes. So that's her story. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty. Thank you for listening to our first episode. If you enjoyed, please make sure to subscribe and maybe leave us a review if you feel so inclined. And see you soon. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> Goodbye. Mytholadies podcast is produced by Elizabeth LaCroix and Zoe Kenninger. Today's episode was researched and presented by Elizabeth LaCroix. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Mytholadies and visit us on our website at mytholadies.com. Our cover art is by Helena Caillot. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thanks for listening. See you next week.